Yeah, so if I said, who is an artist? They would all put their hands up. They would all just love that freedom, that creativity, that making a mess. Yo, what's going on, beautiful people? It's your boy Tito. And his co-host G-Man. And uh, welcome to another episode of Maintain the Design Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting conversation um, with an organ- organizational and coaching psychologist and host of the People Soup Podcast, Ross McIntosh. How are you doing? Hey, Thato. Hey, G-Man. I'm really well, thank you. That's great. That's great. How is, how's the start to 2021 been so far? Um... How to describe it? Um, unusual. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm in the UK and we are currently in another lockdown and it's kind of quite surreal. Mm, because um, even us here in South Africa, we, the restrictions have gone up a little bit, but we're not on a hard lockdown as yet again. You know, so I can imagine how difficult it is to be on a very strict lockdown once again. It it is it is. I mean, to be honest, personally, it's not enormously difficult, but I do worry about family members and and yeah. people who are in difficult positions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, so, Russ, um, for someone who doesn't have an understanding of what it is that you do exactly. Um, how would you how would you describe what you do? Very good question. Um, so I work with organizations. I work with small companies, large companies, and an organizational or occupational psychologist can can look at various areas of an organization. I tend to specialize in partly in psychometric assessments for recruitment. So that yeah. means that, that's kind of like personality profiling. And my main specialism is exploring organizational well-being and leadership. Yeah. Both of those elements. So I will use evidence-based psychology to design interventions to enhance psychological well-being in organizations for individuals. I'll also do the same to look at how we can create the conditions for collaboration and cooperation within teams. Mm -hmm. And I also coach. I coach mainly leaders, supporting leaders in in these complex times, in their complex roles, in organizations that seem to be getting increasingly complex, to give them the flexibility and adaptability to survive and thrive and give direction and inspiration to their people. So it's bringing an evidence base based on psychological and other research to organizations to support them in fulfilling their vision and their mission. Uh, Ross, I just wanted to ask, so in terms of your intervention designs and stuff, do you lean on sort of, um, so I don't know a lot about uh, behavioral psychology, but I do know, I think everyone does know the sort of the Pavlov and the conditioning, the CBTs. Uh, What do you mainly use to design your interventions and what would they look like? Ah, uh, G-Man, great question. Um, 
Yeah, so there is a bit of, you mentioned Pavlov, and at the end of the day, we are, we are animals. And in an organizational sense, we tend to get the behavior that we reinforce. And sometimes if behavior is not so good and we don't address it, then people take that as an indication that that behavior is okay. Mm, true. But let me give you the, the main foundation of all my work is something called contextual behavioral science, which is a way of looking at the human condition and essentially reducing human suffering. And there's a particular part of contextual behavioral science called acceptance and commitment therapy. And we call that ACT just to save time. <laughs> and what that does is it's, a, it's kind of an evolution of con, uh, CBT. Okay. I think you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And what it does, it's allowing me, hopefully, to share with people skills that will allow them to be in the present moment more often. So they can see what's going on around them and notice opportunities and threats. They can also notice what's going on in their minds because quite often that stuff can be an obstacle. Mm -hmm. It allows people to work out what's important for them in different life areas. So um, we call these personal values and it's these things that have personal resonance and meaning for us. And then... Interesting, we look at what's going on between the ears, those, all those unhelpful thoughts, emotions, memories, sensations, that stuff such as, oh, I'm not clever enough to do that, or it will never work, or quite a common one, I'm going to be discovered for the fraud that I am. Mm -hmm. And all those types of thoughts, we can really buy into them and they can really influence how we show up in the world. And stop us doing stuff that's important to us. So by combining an approach addressing these types of skills, we can give people skills to enhance their ability to be flexible in life. So this isn't just about them at work. This is their skills for their whole life. Okay. And we can enhance their capacity to respond to new situations. So that's kind of it in quite a large nutshell. That was quite a long-winded response. But... Hopefully that gives you an insight. Yeah, it does. It actually, it's a great um, jumping off point. Um, also, just um, so in terms of the, the, the act, what would be your, in sort of, because um, I imagine you deal with obviously a wide range of, of people and so it's mainly for a workplace, right? What would be your main problems that uh, sort of emerge from there that you have to deal with? Or your main, mm. are they recurring, you know, scenarios that you end up dealing with? Ah, brilliant, brilliant question. Um, first of all, yeah, ACT is used in all sorts of areas of, of um, psychological intervention. So it's used a lot in one-to-one -one work. It can be used for addiction, um, psychosis, um all sorts of all sorts of areas but what i specialize in it is yes using it in the workplace mm. and i think some of the key things i look at are some of the key things i support people with are 
that 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 connection with anxiety and fear can be quite a big thing. If I'm working with a leader, they can get quite exhausted by the leadership role and the role modeling that they strive to exhibit for their people. Mm-hmm. And that can bring up lots of sense of anxiety or imposter phenomenon, which is that idea that, oh, crikey, I'm going to be discovered. Mm. I, I'm not worthy of this role. So it can just help people understand that that is a natural reaction of the human mind. And in ACT, what we do is help them relate to that in a different way, rather than getting tangled up in it, or rather than trying to get rid of it. Mm. So there's, there's issues around that. There's issues around having a voice. Quite often I work with leaders who are in a meeting and there's an interesting discussion going on and they will want to make a contribution and they go inside their head and think, right, I'm going to craft this contribution. I'm going to design beautifully what I'm going to say. And then they come back to the room and the the conversation has moved on and they've missed their opportunity or someone else has just said what they were going to say and been <laughs> applauded for it. So it's really frustrating for them. Yeah. <laughs> what, one other key <laughs> one other one other key thing that's that's quite prominent at the moment it feels. Well two others actually. One of them is perfectionism. Mm. People feeling that they have to do everything perfectly and expending a heck of a lot of energy to do stuff um, perfectly when it might not be fulfilling or that adaptive for them. Mm. And the other one is, say a leader's gone up through various levels of a hierarchy and they've got to quite a senior role and they're trying to use the same strategies that have got them to that senior role in the first place. So perhaps they are doing everything themselves. Uh, okay. Instead of and yeah. yeah, exactly. Instead of delegating, and if they're doing everything themselves, they think, right, I've been rewarded for that in the past. That's really worked for me in the past. Uh, yeah. This is why I've got to where I've got. And they try applying the same strategy throughout their career, mm. and there comes a point where it doesn't work, and that could be either through elevation up a hierarchy, or it could be in a new context, in a different organization. What works in one organization won't necessarily work in another. People tend to assume that if the competition is doing that, Mm. if they do that, they will be as successful. Mm. Mm. Or, this this is a really great one, if people, you know how sometimes these management or leadership gurus or very successful people publish their daily routine yeah like i get up at four thirty in the morning i spend half an hour in an oxygen tank then i do some yoga and eat some egg whites mm. and then i do three hours of meditation and then i start my day and i work and i have three hours sleep or something i'm exaggerating but you know what i mean yeah. and people yeah. think if they if they emulate their hero or their guru, that they too will be as successful. And I, I'm big, that's a bit insulting to people, but you yeah. know what I mean? We yeah. can all have our gurus and think, exactly. yeah. oh, crikey, if I do what they do, 
that mm. that's the key to success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a moment ago, you touched on um, societal behaviors um, mm. that we normalize. Um, if we don't, if we don't think about them, and if we don't investigate why those behaviors are happening, we end up normalizing them. Mm. Um, what strategies would you say you implement with organizations and your clients as well uh, for people to be able to manage their own personal behavior? Yeah, crikey, that's that's the billion dollar question, if you like. Yeah, what, what I aim to do is allow both individuals and organizations to see what's going on. So mm. in individuals, we can spend about 47% of our waking hours on autopilot. Mm. And what I mean by that is our bodies may be somewhere, but our minds are elsewhere. And sometimes that can be useful for us as human beings. We can yeah. develop great dreams of architecture, music, dance, creativity. But also the wandering mind isn't always a healthy mind. And it's getting individuals to come into the present moment. Because if, say, you're in an organization, you might have become so routine in what you do that you don't actually notice that things are changing around you. Or you don't notice the impact you're having on other people around you. So that's yeah. that's one thing. And at an organizational level, an organizational can can stop looking outwards. An organization can stop connecting with their, their clients and think, hey, we've nailed this, we're, we're really successful, so we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And again, yeah. that can be a sort of um, kind of autopilot for the whole organization. So it's, again, giving them skills to bring them into the present moment using, using things like mindfulness. But then I would say there's another element. There's another element what, what I would call sitting with discomfort. Quite often as individuals, if we're having unhelpful thoughts, what I would call unhelpful thoughts like, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, I'm not sure if I'm good enough for this. We'll try and move away from those rather than just sit with them and be with them, knowing that they're yeah. thoughts produced by our mind. Our mind's doing what it's designed to do to keep us out of danger. And the same thing can happen with, say, a leadership, the executive team of an organization, they can yeah. become so used and, and habitual in their unwillingness to sit with discomfort that they kind of collaborate not to. So they might have a really difficult issue that everybody knows about. You might call it the elephant in the room. Yeah. But they never really get around to discussing it because it's just too difficult. Or they know there'll be disagreement. So they just think, oh, it's probably easier just not to have this conversation. At the same time, the company could be going, the company's performance or the company's impact on the market could be going further down and down. So it's mm-hmm. it's knowing, it's helping individuals and groups understand that it's okay to sit with that discomfort. And, yeah. and in a large in a leadership team, for instance, if you're saying, right, let's have a look at that elephant in the room, let's sit with it, let's work out what's going on, and there'll be there'll be different opinions and disagreement, but through that through airing those dis- different opinions and that disagreement, we are we are building trust and 
the capacity to be vulnerable in a leadership team, which is really important for their for their well being, but also the direction of an organization. Yeah. Mm. In your personal work, um, speaking of behavior, um, when it comes to managing your own personal behavior, would you say that you use your own techniques to manage your personal behavior? Or do you seek second opinions and consultation? Because people would assume that someone in your position has all the answers. So what is your, your perspective on, on managing your own personal behavior, even though you help others in terms of managing this? Mm. Brilliant, brilliant question. I love it because it's so important. So firstly, I, I use ACT in every area of my own life. So in every area of my life, I will think about how do I want to be in this area of my life? What's important to me? How can I bring what's important to me to life in my behavior? And what might my mind be doing that could get in the way? Yeah. So I'm using it all the time, whether it's in presenting in response to an invitation to do some work, whether it's with my family relationships, all the time. And the important, and the important thing to say is that I think that makes it more authentic in delivery. But perhaps even more importantly, my own behavior, it's recognizing that the application of acceptance and commitment therapy act doesn't turn you into some sort of sainted God where you're only doing great things. I will still be the person I don't want to be quite a lot of the time. I'm not holding myself up as a role model. I'm holding myself up as someone who practices these skills and has some expertise in sharing them. But in a training with a workplace group, for example, I don't present myself as, hey, I'm the expert. Mm. I've nailed this stuff and I'm your guru. I aim to present myself as someone who is experiencing the same human condition that everyone in the room is. That's what connects us. And by kind of showing my the way my mind is working and my internal thoughts and emotions and how they still impact on my behavior, it makes it easier to, I think it makes it easier to share the skills Mm. and give people more of an appreciation about how these skills could be used. So it's very much trying to create that, hey, I'm in the I'm experiencing the same human condition as you, so I'm not the guru. What I would hate is if people thought of me as kind of on a platform where I've nailed life. It's very, for me, this, this, this approach is very human. And by me modeling that humanity to myself and that compassion to myself, Mm. hopefully I can convey that to others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Obviously, you, you, it sounds like you work quite a bit with leaders and management, right? Yeah. Uh, so how does dealing with personalities like that, how do you, how do you go about it? Because surely those are sort of, you know what I mean, guys who think they know everything there is to know about their field. And, do you know what I mean? So they don't, I don't think they'd be the easiest people to, to give advice to. How, do you, how yeah. do you go about that? Yeah, so... I think if there were really people who thought they knew they knew everything, they were really clear on their approach. Mm-hmm. Say if I was bidding for some work for an organization, 
Okay. And and I was going in to tell them about my approach, but and they were really clear about what they wanted to do and who they were. Mm. And I explained my approach as I've kind of been sharing with you guys. Yeah. I don't think they'd employ me. Mm. Because my view would be that um, a leader who has a very rigid view of who they are, a story, if you like, of who they are and how they are as a leader, mm. that's, not, that's not that flexible. I don't think that's useful for an organization to be that rigid. Yeah. Because that's almost like a cage around them that stops them responding to new situations or new opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they'd employ me. I think the organizations that do recognize that it's useful to have agility as leader to respond to the tens and hundreds of different scenarios that they will face in, mm-hmm. in an organization over a year, for example. Mm-hmm. How can they flexibly respond while still remaining authentic? If I explain my method of working and and the science I use, if that attracts them, I think we can generally work well together. Mm. There will always be people who who will be more skeptical. And sometimes I can share evidence base, so I can share them some evidence of how this approach can work. And also, it's, it's never really advising. I would say it's never advising. It could be advising on an approach to take, okay. but in one-to-one work, it's very much a, a coaching, okay. a coaching yeah. uh, relationship where I am having a conversation with mm. a leader mm. to explore the issues that they want to work on. Mm. And hopefully through that conversation, we can unlock different perspectives on issues and different potential from mm. them that's already within, within them mm. for instance i could be reconnecting them to their personal values what really matters to them about their leadership and how they are in this current context or i could be talking to them about being in the present moment or perhaps more importantly what's going on between their ears that could be getting in the way of being the leader they want to be mm. are there some doubts there are they waiting are they thinking I'll be the leader I want to be once I have done that course or once I have tackled that difficult issue. Mm-hmm. Or I will have that difficult conversation with a colleague. Um, I'll have it next week. Yeah. Oh, I'll have it the week after. So it's, it's, it's connecting them with their personal values, supporting them in that, and then working out what could be getting in the way. So it's a collaboration with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Russ, um, you say that it's um, it's coaching more than it is advice, yeah. per se, right? Um, how do you deal with situations whereby you've you've coached organizations, you've coached individuals, and you've done the best that you could, but then the results aren't as good as you thought they would be? How do you how do you manage those kind of situations? Good question, too, guys. These are great set of questions. So. <laughs> So in coaching, so in one-to-one work, we'd have, we'd start at the beginning of a coaching relationship with measurable outcomes, how, how they're feeling, perhaps getting some feedback from their colleagues as well. And hopefully we'd have some, some indications of change, both in how they're feeling, how they're approaching different issues, and that there'll always be some movement 
whether it's entirely yeah. the movement, because sometimes in coaching I find you start and the issues they thought they wanted to work on aren't the actual issues that emerge. So it can go in a bit of a different direction and it can result in, for instance, people deciding, actually, I need to leave this organization. Yeah. So there'll always be some, some developments that might not be what we expected, but there'll always be some. On an organizational level, again, I would, I would hope, and in my experience, there are always some shifts in perspectives and behaviors in working with an organization. And I would work with them to develop a, a plan of how to embed what they've achieved so far, how to embed that further and to build on the change that's already occurred. So that, that, I think that would be my approach. That's interesting. What advice would you give to kind of like the younger generation, I'd say our generation, because these days I think you have a lot of young people who, who go to university, for example, um, get their qualifications, and then they start their, their career and their journey in an organization. Um, but I think their expectations are a bit skewed and they don't know how to navigate um, their career to get the best out of what they're pursuing with a bit of clarity. So um, what would your advice to be for, be for young people starting out their careers mm. um, in terms of the psychological aspect of being in an organization and as well as their well-being as well? Mm. Yeah, I think really important, particularly in these times now where our young people are experiencing the same global pandemic as everybody else and maybe thinking quite despairing thoughts about what will the future hold. Because yeah. our minds can travel into the, into the future and if your mind's anything like mine, it can catastrophize quite, <laughs> quite elegantly. And what I'd say is, I think sometimes people go into careers because that's what they think they should do. Yeah. There might be, <clears throat> there might be pressure from perhaps family members. There might be just a social expectation. Oh, I should do this. Yeah. And that career may be fulfilling for uh, a while. It could be fulfilling for a whole career. But I would really encourage people to find ways to think about what's important. Find ways to connect with their purpose and meaning in life. That's what I'd mm. call our personal values. And there are so many self-help books out there, guys. There are so many, like I said before, gurus out there who will say, hey, just do this and everything will be fine. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's a bit of a danger in that, I think that you follow slavishly what, what your guru says and it doesn't work out for you. It becomes more of a prison or you follow a particular leadership structure. You yeah. follow a particular um, leadership model and you try and force yourself into that. And you find that yeah. becomes quite restrictive and doesn't allow you to be yourself and it doesn't allow you to progress in an organization. I think there's, there's something else. My experience of coaching younger leaders is they kind of want the answers. They kind mm. of, Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And that's, for me, that's not, that's not what coaching is. Mm. Coaching is not that, hey, if you just do this, that'll be fine. And that, that would be a bit 
I don't think that would be ethical for me as a coach, and I certainly wouldn't do it to say, hey, you just need to do this and everything will be fine, because that's very much from my perspective. I'm not living their life in their shoes, in their organization. So so I think it would be unwise and unethical for me to give advice. That could come more from a mentoring relationship. So people might seek to get mentors in, in, the, in a field and get more of an experience of different careers. Okay. I think young people would really benefit from knowing that the mind can be quite tricky and it can produce loads of content that's trying to keep us safe. That's what our minds are designed to do. And in keeping us safe, it can stop us doing stuff that's important to us. Mm. And it's knowing that that content is is there to protect us. Our mind is doing its job, but our mind is quite glitchy. And we can learn to relate to that content. We can learn skills to relate to that content in different ways. This is the interesting thing about ACT. In approaches like CBT, we're looking to deconstruct that unhelpful content and challenge it and say it's not true, perhaps. And as you may gather, I'm not trained in CBT, but that's my basic understanding. Mm-hmm. What I like about ACT is the humanity in relation to those thoughts. It's saying, hey, we're all human. You're going to have these thoughts. That's part of the human condition. So your mind is doing exactly as it's intended to do. And we can learn to relate to those thoughts in different ways that are not so debilitating to us. Mm. That allows us to still pursue what's important to us in our life. So that's, I think that would be some of my advice to the younger generation is to think about what's important and be prepared to explore that, knowing that it could be uncomfortable. There could be some Mm. discomfort there. But that's okay. We don't need to run away from that discomfort. Mm. Yeah. Because quite often as, as young people, I think, I don't know about you guys, but if we're experiencing discomfort or sadness or despondency, we're kind of told by the people around us, oh, cheer up. It'll get yeah, better. Yeah. It might never happen. Um, whereas I would say, oh, that's okay to feel these emotions. And it's okay to, to sit with them for a bit because they will pass but you're not broken and you don't need fixing if you're experiencing those emotions. Because I think people can often feel that if they're not 100% happy, 100% all of the time, that there's something wrong with them. They're broken. Yeah. Um, mm. You touched on sort of, a, I actually want to explore it a bit deeper on self-help and you know how there probably is a lot of uh, misleading, maybe not intentionally misleading uh, material out there. Do you have any mm. good sort of... Um, metacognition materials that you could recommend? Yeah, if someone was interested in exploring acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, mm. to, to see if this might be a, an approach that resonates with them, I would put a side note. Obviously, I'm completely biased towards ACT yeah, because I've got a strong evidence base. I believe it has profound benefits for the human beings of this world Mm. um so a great place to start someone who makes it really accessible a colleague of mine who makes it really accessible is a guy called dr ross harris and he wrote a book which is a really great place to start called the happiness trap and i can send you the details of that 
And it really presents ACT in a way that's accessible and it's a really great introduction to ACT. So that's probably the foundational text mm. I would recommend. If people wanted to go into it in more detail and understand a bit of the underlying theory, yeah. I would recommend... Hmm, what would I recommend? Hang on, I'm just going to turn around and look at my bookshelf. Bear with okay. me. <laughs> no problem. I think uh, you need a disclaimer just to tell uh, everyone you, this is not sponsored uh, material. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I am. I don't have any um, um, arrangements or <laughs> benefits from promoting these books. Right. I've grabbed a couple of books. Um, two other books I'd recommend, guys. And one is called A Liberated Mind. And that is by Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. And he is one of the originators of ACT. Okay. And that's a recent book. And it really, it really does encapsulate his, the evolution of the approach. The subtitle is Transform Your Thinking and Find Freedom from Stress, Anxiety, Depression, and Addiction. And then there's a great book from a colleague of mine in Canada called Healthy Habits Suck, How to Get Off the Couch and Live a Healthy Life Even If You Don't Want To. Ooh, and that's mm. by Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. I'll send you the, the details of those because that, that, that last one by Dana, they all, they all present ACT in a really accessible way, but Dana talks about it in terms of Oh gosh, should we have that salad or should we have the nice portion of fries? And why yeah. it's so attractive for us to have those fries. Mm. She, she links things to our personal values and she does it in a really accessible way. So they, they have some great texts to introduce people to act, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I think that'll, that'll definitely be an interesting read. Um, and um, Ross, when we when we when we opened up this conversation, we spoke about um, your the lockdown that you're currently experiencing. Um, and a lot of the people I've spoken to, and even myself, I've felt this personally. Um, there's a lot of social anxiety happening mm. at the moment because people feel as if they can't control their movements. Um, they're restricted. You know, they're uncertain about what's going to happen in the immediate future as well. Um, so. At the moment, what would you say the attitude of the people that you work with at the moment? What is their attitude? And do you find that people are more productive at the moment and that they're giving their best within organizations um, despite of all of this uncertainty? Or do you think that there's a, a, a reduced level of productivity um, because of this fear and social anxiety happening at the moment? Mm. Thanks, Thato. Um it, it's difficult to, to, to generalize completely because I work with various organizations and each one has individuals in it. And so it'll be a variety of responses to the ongoing pandemic and the lockdown here in the UK. And I think I am noticing that people are tired. People are yeah. exhausted and quite anxious. And sometimes I'll get the sense from an organization, can you come and remove this anxiety? Yeah. It's not quite as 
explicit as that, but yeah. <laughs> but it's it's kind of my message then is now I'm afraid I can't because people experiencing anxiety that's normal. We're going yeah. through something so unprecedented and weird that um, it's normal to be anxious. So it's it's giving people the skills to help them manage their day, help them disconnect from work at the end of the day rather than just keep working. Mm. It's helping people. There's a, there's a psychological theory called basic psychological needs. These are some mm. of the basic human needs, and they could be described as A, B, C. Yeah. Mm. So autonomy, belonging, and competence. So autonomy mm. is you have some control over your day. Belonging is you can connect with other people, and mostly that will be done by video or telephone. Okay. And competence, you can feel like you're developing skills. So I'd really focus on that for people who are feeling quite despondent. Mm, yeah. And do I think productivity has gone up or down? I'm not sure. I don't have any data. My, my instinct would be, it depends on the organization. For instance, I'm doing some work with the National Health Service here in yeah. the UK. And I would, I would place a bet that I think productivity has gone up in terms of patients and working hours and the work they're doing. Yeah. The cost of that in the longer term, I don't know. But whether you would class that as productivity, I'm not sure. In other organizations, I, I honestly don't know. I think it could vary. I think in these circumstances, I think productivity can vary individually on a kind of hourly basis. I, I don't know if you guys experience this. You can have days where you think, oh, I got... Yeah, all the time. I really nailed that today. I, I got loads done and it was really, it was really quite a productive day. And then other days, it feels like you're wading through treacle and you get nothing done and you can feel quite despondent. So, so I think productivity, it can vary. And it, I think it can be really influenced by the pandemic too, yeah. Those, yeah. those feelings of social anxiety. So the other thing I'd encourage people to do is think about what they control. Mm. Think about expend your energy. For instance, I, I don't control the local response to this pandemic i'm not in charge of policy for this country yeah so i can't influence the policy i don't think but i can influence what happens to my family how we respond to how we respond to the rules and regulations to try and keep us safe and keep myself safe so that's something where i can expend my energy um if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, Ross, I, um, so we're talking about ACT and I think with all these, um, with all these metacognition techniques and, and therapeutical techniques, um, it's easy to gloss over just how like, difficult it is to apply in, in, in most scenarios or when you're trying to do it yourself. Um, mm. What do you think, what kind of approach or sort of what's the best way to to take away from act or to at least come away with some sort of um tangible results from using act and mm. um, just to 
add on sort of an addendum to that question. Uh, do you ever come across cases that you think are beyond your help or beyond the act of uh, the, the help of act? Right. And, and what would that be? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, I think in 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 training and in working with groups and individuals, it's giving people time when you're with them mm. to rehearse the skills. Okay. Yeah. So having some opportunity for behavioral rehearsal in a training session is critical because we've all been on training courses where they present some whizzy idea and you think, oh, that could be useful. Then you leave that training course and you've had not have an opportunity to practice it. Mm. And it just becomes a folder that you put in your desk and find 10 years later. Mm. Mm. So I think there's that. I think Ideally, if I was training people in ACT, a group of people, I would do it over more than one session. Ideally, over, say, three or four sessions so people can come back and say, oh, I've had a go at this, and this is what happened, or this is what I noticed. And we can really build on the learning then, and people can learn from each other. Mm. It all gives them more of a chance of sustainable behavior change. Um, And similarly, in coaching, holding uh, your coaching client to account. They, they commit to, do, to take action between sessions and it's exploring what happens in each of those, supporting them and noticing that and giving them a chance, perhaps again, for some behavioral rehearsal sometimes in coaching. Sometimes you will rehearse them having a difficult conversation. You will play the other person. Mm-hmm. It allows them to feel what it's like to hear those words coming out of their own mouth. And the second part, yeah, in a group situation, that's really interesting because if I'm working with, say, a group of, say, 10 people, yeah. some people will be more engaged than others. Mm. And, and you don't always know what people are getting out of a session. You can ask them, give them questionnaires at the end. And I think some people it will appeal to less. Yeah, yeah. And... Hopefully, they get something out of the approach, whether it's, oh, thinking about what's important to me in this life area or thinking about, oh, my mind, I could almost consider myself as observing my own mind Mm. rather than be tangled up in what it produces. That could be, if they got that out of some training, I'd be delighted. Mm. And in terms of coaching, if if someone presented a, a... an issue or something they wanted to work on that that I wouldn't say it had to be directly related to work because in my coaching work we do talk about my client's life outside of work mm-hmm. but, but if it got into an area where I, I knew there was other expertise so for instance um, addiction that is not my area of expertise so, say someone had an addiction in their okay. in their life that was inhibiting them in the workplace I would I would refer them on to a uh, colleague okay. to yeah. to recommend that they seek support, and that could be continuing with an approach founded in ACT, or it could be a, a different approach mm. that would work for them. Yeah. Mm. G-Man and I have actually been exploring and discussing um, creativity a lot lately. Um, our podcast is centered around creative culture and lifestyle, but as time has progressed. Um, I've really been thinking a lot about creativity and what it actually is. Um, you know, most people from my generation, if you ask them what a creative is, 
Um, they'll think color, they'll think freelancers, they'll think uh, people that produce and shoot content, they'll think music and all this kind of stuff. Um, but creativity is such a complex um, topic to explore in terms of um, its definition. So from a psychological perspective, how would you personally define creativity? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic. I'm glad you're, you're exploring this, guys, because um, let me just give you an example. If I went into a school and said to a group of, I don't know, six-year-old children, mm. who is creative here? Who is an artist? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Corona. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Blimey! Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if I said, "Who is an artist?" Mm. They would all put their hands up. They would all just love that freedom, that creativity, that making a mess, and loving yeah. their art. But it, by the time they're about—I'm not sure exactly—but say twelve or thirteen, if you went into yes. a school and said, "Who's an artist?" Maybe three or four would put their hands up. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, Vato, I think you're right. I think people have a quite a limited view, quite a restrictive view of what creativity is. Yeah. Some of my work is with people in, in the civil service, in government, or in finance professions. Mm. Yeah. And they can say, oh, creativity couldn't be one of my values because I can't draw or I can't paint. Mm. And sometimes in a, in a coaching session, I might just get people to say, okay, have a, have a go at drawing your, your situation or drawing where you'd like to be in five years' time. And I don't care how brilliant or otherwise you think it is. Just have a go. And if you're willing to share it with me, it can unlock things in people because mm-hmm. they could produce quite what they might consider to be quite a rudimentary childlike drawing. Mm, but, yeah. but I can see it and they can talk me through it and it can release something in them to think. Because I, w- I would suggest they were probably having thoughts like, I'm not an artist, I'm not creative. And those thoughts like, I'm not an artist, I'm not creative, are like a cage around us. Mm. Mm. We, we start buying into that story. Mm. We believe that story as a, as a kind of a bit of a, a side note. Sometimes when I'm working with people in their, exploring their personal values, I will have a set of values cards with about 60 different words written on these cards and a definition. And one of those words near the top is adventure. Mm. And people will always say, oh, I'm not adventurous. I would oh, never wow. do a bungee. I would never do a bungee jump. Mm. And I'm like, why do people always say bungee jump? Why do people associate? <laughs> <laughs> why do people associate adventure or excitement with bungee jump? Because I always say, one person's bungee jump could be me going to the supermarket and deciding instead of using my regular brand of washing powder. I'm going to switch brands. That could be an adventure for <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, true. But we can become so restricted by a story in our heads that, like, I'm not creative or 
I'm no good at sport mm. or I couldn't do that. I'm not clever enough that those thoughts become like a prison around us and we think we can't do stuff. Mm. Um, I mean, since we're on this topic, can I just, uh, do you possibly know why we've got uh, limiting beliefs? Is it because I can understand obviously the, the practical side of it, you know, um, that you can't probably put your hand in a burning fire and stuff like mm. that. Is there, is there an evolutionary, you know, advantage from it or is there a purpose for it? Our limiting yeah. Belief? Yeah. Um, it's, it does have an evolutionary perspective. And the way I would try and have a go at positioning it is that we've descended from people who survived because they were quite cautious. Mm. They had part of their brain that was saying, don't go out on your own because you might get eaten by a wild animal. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was developing a, a threat system and, and the people who listened to those thoughts and warnings didn't mm-hmm. go out and, and we've all descended from them. So the, the mind is doing exactly the same thing, producing threats and warnings, but the environment in which we live is quite different now. So it's knowing when our mind is doing something useful, like, hey, don't put your hand in the fire. Yeah. And when it's saying, hey, don't, don't say yes to the invitation to speak or to give mm-hmm. that lecture mm-hmm. because people might ask you difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's helping us distinguish and notice what our mind's doing. So, yeah, there is a definite evolutionary perspective to it. And that's what can yeah. keep us um, trapped and kind of unfulfilled. Mm, yeah, yeah. Conventionally, people would say that originality and functionality are the main components of creativity. Mm. Um, but we, we've just discussed how more diverse it possibly is mm. and maybe it should be explored more by society as well. Um, but just on, crea- on, on functionality and originality, do you think when it comes to those two components, do you think that people spend too much time focusing on the originality of whatever they're creating and not the functionality? Mm. I'd never really thought of it like that. And I think, I think you might be right in... In this approach, we talk about the function of a thought. Mm. If the function of a thought is to say, if I'm having the thought, oh, I shouldn't put my hand in the fire, the function of that is really useful for me because I don't put mm. my hand in the fire. If yeah. I'm having a thought, I'm just trying to work this through in my head. If I'm having the thought that my new product or my next podcast episode needs to be really original, I could get kind of tangled up in that. Well, what is original? How do I know it's original? What if someone yeah. on the other side of the world is doing exactly the same as if at the same time as me? Or what if they did it five years ago? So we can mm. get tangled up in that. So I guess creativity is about connecting things in a different way or getting different perspectives on things. And that's where we can really see advances. And that's where there can be some happy experiments. So I think uh, kind of rather than striving for originality, I would suggest 
holding lightly the values of experimentation and playfulness mm. and then seeing the functionality of what emerges, that could be yeah. a kind of different lens to look through. Mm. It's something, it's something to really think about. Maybe we'll write a book on it one day, G-Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ross, so obviously we, we, we looked at your bio and it said you, you, you're still working in research. Um, yeah. what, what, are you, what are you working on at the moment? Anything exciting? Yeah, we are designing interventions based upon ACT um, to deliver in organizations across the public sector. So from, from teachers to people who work in the civil service to people who work in the NHS primarily. And okay. we're doing, we're, we've been doing measures before and after. And those measures are both quantitative and qualitative. So we're looking at both sides. We're interviewing some people afterwards. And that all, all that data is currently coming together. But what we do know early, early indications and from previous studies is that we know we can elevate psychological well-being for people in organizations. And particularly for distressed employees, we can elevate psychological well-being. If people are in a really quite a distressed state and they can come into a group intervention with us, we know that we can improve their well-being. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Some other research that's very much early days, but we're looking at ways to apply the same approach as ACT as in teams to develop the... the conditions for collaboration and cooperation within teams mm, mm. Um, using behavioral science and other approaches from evolution and economics so that's that's some stuff that other people have have developed the concepts and the theory and we are just starting to think about applying them in organizations i have been applying it in organizations as an approach mm. but i haven't yet been measuring it so we're now looking to, to measure it uh, okay. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. How how do civil servants deal with the stress and and you know the workplace pressures? They just don't care. So uh, I think uh, it's a little different <laughs> from England. Uh, <laughs> ah. Okay. <laughs> um. I also wanted to ask. Um. So it it says you were you were actually in public service for about twenty years. Yeah. Uh, what made you what made you leave after twenty years? I mean that's a career, you know. What made you switch it up? Yeah, that was that was quite a big moment for me, <laughs> Um honestly, I was bored. Really? I was looking I was I was in human resources. My career had kind of I had, I don't get me wrong, I had a really fantastic and exciting career in the civil service. Mm. Mm. And Guys, I was well paid. I had a prospect of a decent pension. Mm. And I was quite despondent over a number of years. I was thinking, like, is this it? Yeah. I didn't feel I was really making the impact or the difference that I could do in organizations. Oh, I no. felt a bit like a bit like Groundhog Day, I guess. And this mm-hmm. this this thought was with me for probably about five years. It was kind of an itch that I kept scratching. Mm. 
And then one day I said to my partner, I said, because I was thinking about how we are remembered in organizations. And I said, what do you think I'll be remembered for? And he said, that's easy, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And he wasn't being harsh. He wasn't being cruel. He was essentially speaking the truth. He he meant it with much love. But Mm. it's kind of, we we tend to think that we are a vital cog in in an organization. And actually, from my perspective, I'm not. We can we can hopefully do good work and make an impact, but but we're we're not remembered that much. So that was kind of set me thinking. Well, I can do what the hell I want to do, and so I I left, and I remember I was terrified of telling my parents because they always were like, oh, our Ross is in a really good job in the civil service. He's, he's been promoted a couple of times and he's doing really well. Mm. And in their minds, I was kind of running the show. I was running the, the government. Okay. The, the civil service. <laughs> I certainly wasn't, as an aside, I wasn't. Mm. Um, but you know how parents get with the pride. Yeah. And, yeah. and I told them eventually that I was leaving and they were like, and I was leaving to go back to study. I was going to do mm. a master's in organizational psychology. And they said, oh, good for you. You've been miserable for a while, so you should you should do you should do something that that ignites you and gives you purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so you recommend it for anyone else if you if you you know what I mean feel the itch, scratch it kind of thing. Um, yeah, I would definitely say if people have the itch to explore it, I wouldn't say yeah. just leap. I wouldn't say just leap, but explore it because we can just become all those thoughts like I need to provide, I need to pay a mortgage, Mm. I have a family, whatever they are, just explore them openly Mm. and and think about what those big questions that we can ignore for our whole lives. What do I want to get out of my career? Mm. I worked with a a person who was an investment banker. Who was earning mega bucks? Yeah, they had a, a beautiful house, a very luxury type of lifestyle, mm. and they were absolutely miserable, absolutely miserable yeah. and despondent. And they had a real attraction to teaching. They thought, "I really love to be a teacher." Obviously, the difference in salary mm. between an investment banker and a teacher is yeah, lost. Exactly. <laughs> and and I did some coaching work with them and we just explored the, the practical issues. Mm. We explored um, what they would get from teaching, what qualities, what what purpose would they get from teaching. And they made the move. They did it. And there was a moment when they were discussing it with their family, their partner and their, their children. Mm. And the kind of message from one of the children was, I'd rather have a daddy that was alive and happy than one that was sad and died. Mm. So it's it's kind of, it's it's kind of shit's getting real when you start to ask those sort of questions of yourself, but it it can take you in unusual directions. 
Yeah. And I think one of the main issues is that people think that they don't have time. So they'll be unhappy with whatever it is that they're doing and feel like they have to do it to fit into society and to provide, Mm -hmm. like you said, you know, and have a certain perception in society. But I think there's always time to pursue what makes you happy ultimately. Mm. Yeah. But, um, Ross, uh, how do you, because sometimes I honestly can't discern between, um, genuine desires and sort of maybe what you say is sort of a societal conditioning and expectations how does one discern sometimes sometimes you really do think you want something you know mm. out of your own innate desire and uh i mean it gets confusing how do you discern is there a way um there's, there's not a magic formula i can give you but i think it's really connecting back to the the values what gives you purpose in your life what do you think connects you to to meaning and it can be that you experiment a little be willing to experiment and and try an avenue try something rather than leaping into it wholeheartedly that the guy the guy i mentioned before about who went from investment banking to teaching he did Mm. he did uh took some holiday and did some assisting in a school Uh, as an assistant teacher so experiment don't think you have to go wholeheartedly in one direction and then Mm. because that again could be a prison if you say oh this is my desire this is my purpose and you Mm. invest Mm. everything in that and you move forward Mm. and in a year's time you think oh i'm Mm. not sure this was the right direction then you might feel some sort of compulsion to keep going but maybe through embarrassment what would people think if i said i wanted to do this and now i've changed my mind again mm-hmm. so it can, that can become a prison so you think oh i must just keep going so i think be prepared to keep checking in on whether this is fulfilling because i think our personal values can sometimes they can be a values that are a rich scene throughout our whole lives mm-hmm. and remain with us sometimes they change with different life events as we as we get older yeah and uh ross just to end off with um i just wanted to find out what inspired you to start podcasting to go into podcasting and to start the people soup podcast oh yeah right i do (laughs) i do some lectures um at some universities mainly ones in london city university of london and birkbeck in london and i was doing a a lecture to some master students in organizational psychology and the sort of theme of my lecture was get out there into organizations and make some noise with evidence-based science mm-hmm. because i was frustrated that there are people working with organizations who are using stuff that may look very groovy and flash in terms of marketing and presentation but it, there's no evidence base on it and it's just not going to result in any behavior change so my message to them was get out there and make some noise in organizations be proud of being an organizational psychologist and getting out there and make a difference something's Mm. something's made you come on this course so get out there and use evidence-based psychology to support people in organizations because crikey people need us in organizations so that was the kind of thrust of my lecture and Mm. one person at the end said what are you doing to make some noise? 
Yeah. And I thought, well, oh, bugger. I thought, oh, shit. Well, I thought, <laughs> well, what, what I'm doing in organizations is the ones I work with, I am endeavoring to make some noise, but could I re- reach a larger audience? Yeah. So then I very tentatively started my first episode. I, I don't even, I think I called it an audio blog. I thought it was just going to be a one-off. Mm, yeah. And I talked about autopilot and the wandering mind. And that was my first episode. And then I got such a response to that that I kept going. So now I do a mixture of interviews with people who are really creative in the way they convey their message mm. about behavioral science. And I do shorter episodes where I hopefully give people an insight into the skills that they could use to support themselves and each other in their working lives and beyond. So mm. that's where it came from, someone asking a question in a lecture. And then the name came from a quote from... Abraham Maslow. And he said, Abraham Maslow, a psychologist, said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. <laughs> and I just thought that was quite quite an interesting quote. And from that, I thought about an organization is like a soup of people with different people, different perspectives, different skills. Mm. And if you mm. blend that soup correctly, you can get great creativity, productivity. And it takes spices and herbs and mixing. So that's why I came up with the title, People Soup. Um, Mm. Nice. Interesting. (laughs) Can I ask you uh, one more sort of personal question? Um, So what are your personal values? Yeah, great. My personal values are creativity. So aiming to make this behavioral science that is evidence-based and I apply in my own life, making it as accessible to as many people as possible. Mm. And some of that is through the People Suit podcast. Mm. Another of my core values is being of service to others. I see that people are suffering in organizations and with the provision of skills, psychological, practical skills that can help them navigate the complex world of organizations and their own lives. Mm. And courage. They, they are three of my core values. So courage to actually think. I don't know if you guys feel this sometimes when you press publish on an episode and you think, oh, what if this isn't quite right? Or what if someone says, yeah. you've got that completely wrong? Or, or this is a bit shit. Yeah, all the time, all the time. <laughs> And, and it takes courage to actually keep going, chaps. So I'll be applaud you and what you do and the, the way you're exploring issues and letting, letting it be quite flexible in the way you develop your themes and, and, and guide your conversations. So hats off to you. Thanks. We, we appreciate that. And uh, yeah, Russ, thank you so much for speaking with us. Hey. Um, Hopefully it's not the last time. Hopefully we can have another conversation in the future. Hey, that would be wonderful, guys. I've really enjoyed this. You've given my mind a real workout this morning. <laughs> no, we're glad. We're glad. Um, and uh, just before you go, where can um, our listeners find you if they want to just have a look at more of your work and just interact with you on social media? Yeah, I can send you all the links, but my website is rossmackintosh.co.uk and you'll find me on Twitter at PeopleSoupPod, 
on Instagram, we are at people.soup. And we're on Facebook at People Soup Pod.